remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also the sermon text from John 6. This is the gospel of God. Give it your ear. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has sent, has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to Him, Lord, Give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is our light. It is our lamp. Show us the way. Show us the path. Reveal it to us through your word and through your spirit working in our hearts and our minds so that we hear your word, and then go out of here as doers of it. We ask this humbly and fervently in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. About 20 times every week, we all do the same thing at about the same time of day. Some of us may do it a little more than 20 times, some a little less. All of us do it at least a couple times a day. 
Most do it more. What am I talking about? Eating. Most of us are quite aware of when it is mealtime. Very few of us miss many meals during the course of a regular week. Most of you don't have to put mealtime on your calendars. Human bodies need food, and human bodies tell us when we need food. It's one of our most basic needs, food. No person is exempt from this need. Everybody, every body needs food. And everybody at many points in his life becomes aware of this need for, for food, sometimes acutely aware. Empty stomachs cry out for this need to be met. Hunger pains regularly drive us to the refrigerator or the pantry to fill our empty, maybe even growling stomachs. In our text today, Jesus is talking to the multitude that keeps following him, and he wants them to see that their spiritual stomachs are empty. These people are very much in tune with the emptiness in their physical stomachs. That's why they're interested in Jesus. That's why they want to make him king. He can fill their empty bellies. But Jesus exposes their spiritual emptiness. And he wants them to recognize it. He's calling them to hunger and thirst for righteousness as much as they hunger for the food that perishes, as important as that food is. He wants them to understand their utter spiritual emptiness so that he can tell them how to be filled, how to be satisfied, and so that they can receive what he has to offer, which is far better than the food that perishes. And the Spirit inspired this passage so that we too might become aware of our deep need for the bread of heaven, which is Christ Himself. Is it possible for us to become as acutely aware of that need as we are aware of our physical needs? Do you recognize your spiritual need and its depths? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do your hunger pains regularly drive you to Christ and His Word? Does your soul ache for the bread of life, the bread of eternal life, as much as your body aches for the food that passes away? If not, then meditate on this passage and ask God to intensify your spiritual hunger. Ask Him to develop your appetite for the bread of everlasting life. First, we need to review the setting of our passage. The challenge to preaching on John 6 is that it's really just one huge passage. And so we constantly need to be seeing what's happening before and after whichever chunk of 10 or 15 verses we happen to be on. Verse 22 says, on the following day. The day following what? It was the day following the miracle of the loaves. On the previous day, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus fed over 5,000 people. 
hungry people. And he did it with a little boy's sack lunch made out of two fish and five little loaves of barley bread. The day after this miracle, this same group of people are hungry again. Their bellies were filled the day before, but today is a new day, and so there are new hunger pains. So they're looking for Jesus. They determine that He's not on the east side of the sea, which is where the miracle, the loaves, took place. So they get in some boats, and they sail across, or row across to the west side of the sea to Capernaum. They're wanting to find Jesus, the Jesus who fed them. Verse 14 ends, or rather, verse 24 ends with two words seeking Jesus. But they weren't seeking Jesus so that they could receive spiritual food, they only wanted more of the food that perishes. Jesus is going to give them a whole lot more than they're asking for. The question is, are they going to recognize it for what it is and receive it? They asked Jesus in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you come here? When did you come over here from the, from the east side to the west side? How did you get here? You may have noticed in your reading of the Gospels that Jesus doesn't always answer the question that is asked of Him. And this is one of those times Jesus never answers this question that they ask Him in verse 25. It's a shallow question from a group of shallow believers, followers. And Jesus wants to go deeper. In verse 26, He gets to the spiritual heart of the matter. He goes straight to the true motivation that led them to their search for Him. Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek Me not because you saw the signs, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're not following me because you saw the signs and understood their meaning and followed the sign back to the thing that it signifies, which is me, my kingdom, and my identity. You have one basic motivation to get your bellies filled. Then he gives them another exhortation in verse 27. Don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Notice that he says, don't work for food that perishes, work for the food that endures, which I will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him, the Son of Man, which is himself. Did you notice the contrast there in verse 27 between the two different kinds of food? Verse 27 is a key verse in this passage, as I said last week. If you're the kind of person who writes or highlights in your Bible, I suggest that you underline or highlight these two phrases in verse 27. Food, the food which perishes, the food which endures. It's a sharp contrast there. These two phrases represent two different appetites in human beings. First, there's the appetite toward physical food. And this physical appetite is satisfied by the food that perishes. Food that does not last forever. It either perishes before you eat it, because it goes bad, or it perishes after you eat it, because it is consumed and turned to waste. Either way, it's food that does not last forever. It's perishing food. 
but we need to stay alive. The body needs the food that perishes. That's one appetite. There's not a living person who does not have it. But there's another appetite. The spiritual appetite. Unfortunately, the spiritual appetite is not nearly as widespread, is it? It's not universal like the first one. The spiritual appetite is only satisfied by the food that endures. The food that does last forever. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those, there are those who have only eaten the food that perishes. And, there, and then there are those who, in addition to have eaten the food that perishes, have partaken of the spiritual food that endures to eternal life. The people in the second group, which is the majority of us here, are those of us who know Jesus and who are known by Him. Our hearts have been linked to Jesus by faith in Him. By means of His Holy Spirit. His Spirit lives in us and leads us even as we live by the Spirit and are led by the Spirit. Because we are connected to Christ, we experience new life, resurrection life, eternal life. Our spiritual dimension has been awakened, made alive, raised from the dead. Even as Lazarus was raised from the dead. Our spiritual hunger has been satisfied and it continues to be satisfied day to day. Some days more so than other days. Some days less so than other days, unfortunately. Are you in this group? If so, your hunger has been satisfied by the food that helps you to endure finding out that you or someone you love has a terminal illness. It's been satisfied by the food that satisfies when friends fail, when family falls short, and when the groaning that Paul describes in Romans 8 becomes deep. It's the food that endures through all the hardships of this world, and it's the food that will continue to feed you in the world to come. It's eternal food. It's, there'll, there'll never be an end to it. It'll never not be there for you. You'll feast on it for all eternity. There are probably some here who know nothing or perhaps who know dangerously little about the spiritual appetite that Jesus is talking about in verse 27. You're largely unaware, maybe completely unaware, of the satisfaction that comes with knowing Jesus, communing with Jesus, who is the food that endures to everlasting life. You're only aware of one appetite. The only, the, the one, the appetite that you know of is the one that you make sure to satisfy about 21 times a week. You've heard of Jesus. You've been baptized into His name perhaps. You may be a member of a church. This church. Another church. You might live with someone or work with someone who knows what it means to be filled 
with food that endures and that gives spiritual life. But if you're honest with yourself, you have to admit that you can't make much sense of all this talk of spiritual food that satisfies and endures to eternal life. It's like a foreign language to you. The only thing you know for sure is that even if you have partaken of this enduring food, it's never been very real or important to you or central. It's never left much of an impression on you or your life. It's not made much difference in the way you live. You can't remember the last time you tasted this food. And you don't recall really ever being filled with it. If that's you, then you may have some basic questions that this text addresses. Like, what exactly is this food that endures? What's its nature? And how do I eat it? How do I get filled with it? How am I satisfied by it? The first thing to notice is that you don't work for the food that endures. At least you don't work for it in the way we normally think about working for things. Jesus does say to labor for it in the first half of verse 27, but before he finishes the sentence in verse 27, look what he says. He lets us know that it's a free gift. The Son of Man will give it to you. It's not something you can earn. We're used to working for things. For, we're used to working for our food. We know that a man who does not work does not eat. Or at least, he doesn't eat very well. The man who works eats. And the man who works hard eats even better. That's what we're used to. That's the way we think and that's the way we like it. We're hard workers. We pride ourselves in having worked for what we got. We can identify with the question then in verse 28. Okay then Jesus, tell us what to do. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? We're naturally eager to figure out what we can do for God. Maybe even to earn a little extra favor. We help the needy. We give money to God's kingdom. We become a pastor. We lead a small group. We have lots of children. We disciple them and homeschool them. We diligently pick up the slack at church. We sing the hymns vigorously. We beautify the worship with instruments. We feed our families healthy food. We donate our time, talent, and treasure for the sake of Christ. We become reliable citizens, dependable church members. We read our Bibles dutifully. Pray continually. We go to church camp and memorize Scripture. Talk to people about Jesus. But if we're not careful, if we don't guard our hearts as we do these things, we can find ourselves doing these very good things. Even necessary things. With the secret hope that God will tip His hat to our works. Forgetting that they are not our works, but God's works that He is doing through us. We would love to think that our good works add a little to our worth or our acceptability before God. There's a part of us 
that would like to think that we can work for the food that endures or maybe get a little extra with a little extra work just as we work hard for the food that perishes. In fact, we might even would rather work for it than just receive it as a free gift. A free gift from God doesn't do anything for our self-esteem, our self-worth, our pride. But the food that endures doesn't work that way. You don't work for it the way you work for the food that perishes. You can't climb a ladder of acceptance before God so that you get more of this kind of food. The food that endures is given to you freely. Jesus gives it to you, which is to say He gives you Himself. And you receive Him by faith, not by works. You eat of Him by coming to Him. Jesus is going to say in a few minutes, by trusting Him, by entrusting yourself to Him. Jesus makes that clear in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. That's your work. If you're intent on talking about work, this is your work. Receive. Believe. Just come to Me. You you can reject the gift or receive the gift, but you can't pay for it. Because it's already been paid for in full on the cross. The passage that we read from 1 Peter today says that He bore all of your sins on the cross in His body. That's when He paid for this bread, this meal that endures. The cross of Christ was the only work that was worthy to make you acceptable before God. The cross is the only ladder that can bridge the gap between you and God. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you invite my family and me over to your place to feed us dinner, to fellowship. And you serve us some tender red meat and mashed potatoes with lots of butter. And one of those salads that my wife makes with artichokes and eggs and bacon and a bunch of other good things. Top it off with chocolate cream pie. And then as we're leaving, after we talk and have a good time, as we're leaving, I turn to you and ask, so how much do I owe you? As I reach for my billfold. What you're feeling at that point, you're thinking, what an insult. What are you talking about? I gave this to you. This was a gift. I wanted to bless you. It was my gift to you and your family. To pay for it would ruin it. Even to offer to pay for it ruins it. It it fouls up the whole thing. Messes up the whole project. What we had going here. There is in the heart of every person an impulse to pay for what God has freely given. To pay for the eternal life meal that Jesus has already paid for. To earn a bit of it. Maybe not all of it, but part of it. But this impulse is an insult to Christ and the cross because it's a denial of Christ 
and His cross. Jesus is saying, look, I want to give you this meal. It's my gift to you. But the response of the natural man is, well, I'm no freeloader. I earn what I get. I've got my pride. And sometimes this mindset can take over the heart of a saved person, not just the unregenerate person. It's an impulse that all of us must fight until the day we die as we find our identity in Christ and in Christ alone. Christ plus nothing. Christ plus nothing that we have to offer. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to thy cross I cling. You cannot add anything to God's acceptance of you in Christ. Nothing you have done or will ever do can make you more or less worthy in God's eyes. There is a freedom in knowing this. There's a freedom in accepting this free gift as a free gift. There's a freedom in finding your identity in Christ and His righteousness alone and not in your own. The crowd's not done displaying their unbelief. Verse 30, Therefore they said to Him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Now this is one of those you've got to be kidding me moments. Are they really asking Jesus for a miracle that will help them to believe in Him? What about the one He performed roughly 24 hours earlier on the other side of the sea where He multiplied the bread and the fish and He filled them up? when there was no food. What about that one? Of course, what they really want, and this becomes clear in verse 31, what they really want is another fish sandwich. Look, Jesus, let's just act like nothing happened yesterday. You give us a sign today. Give us, give us some food for our bellies, maybe. And prove that you can do it, and then we will believe. Now, I said that this is a you've-got-to-be-kidding-me moment, but this is just like us, isn't it? I know it's just like me. God shows His faithfulness to me week in and week out. He helps me to overcome some difficult barrier, sometimes in answer to prayer, sometimes in spite of my lack of prayer. He shows Himself to be present with me, and He proves that He will always provide for me. And then I come to a new week, which presents itself with a new set of difficulties, barriers. And I say, Lord, I'm having a hard time believing that you're with me and that you'll provide for me, that you can take care of this, that you're going to come through. Just prove yourself today. Give me a sign today. Prove that you can do it and I'll believe. That's all I need. And I forget that this is precisely what Jesus did for me the day before, the week before. You know why David knew that he could overcome the giant? The text, that passage tells us. 
because he remembered how the God of yesterday had delivered him from a bear and a lion when nobody was looking, was watching the sheep. He knew that the same God who took care of the lion and the bear could take care of this uncircumcised Philistine who was defiling the armies of the living God. He remembered what God had done and he applied it by faith to the present impossible situation. But this crowd following Jesus did not remember what he had done. Oh, they, they knew it happened. They didn't have amnesia, literally. But they didn't apply it. They didn't remember it by faith. They didn't trust in the one who did it. They didn't know what it meant. They say in verse 30, just show us a sign, Jesus. If you're the Messiah, do a miracle, preferably food for our bellies. And when we see it, that'll be enough for us to believe in you. And then in verse 31, they help Jesus out. They provide an example of the kind of thing that they have in mind. What work will you do, Jesus? Here, let us help you out. Verse 31, our fathers ate manna. In the desert, every day. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, the every day is not in the text, but that's the implication. Everybody knew that the manna was daily. What a convenient illustration they chose there in verse 31. Did you hear that, Jesus? Moses gave our fathers food that they could eat. Emphasis on eat. Food that went into their stomachs and satisfied them. It was called bread from heaven. But you'll notice, Jesus, that it wasn't so heavenly that it was of no earthly good. It was heavenly bread that actually filled their bellies. And you'll notice that Moses provided it every day, not just one time. If you're the Messiah, you're supposed to be even greater than Moses. Come on, Jesus, bring on the bread. You can call it what you want. Bread from heaven. The bread that endures to everlasting life. Call it what you will. Just give us something to eat. As Moses gave our fathers something to eat. And please do it today. That's the essence of what the people are saying to Jesus. Of course, Jesus has already made it clear that that's what their interest is, is filling their belly. And then they make it explicit by their illustration, their example of what Moses did. But Jesus corrects them in verses 32 and 33. Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Moses didn't give anyone the true bread from heaven. Only the Father can do that who is the bread of God who comes down from heaven who gives life to the whole world it's Jesus God gave Jesus to this world to offer life to give life that we might receive it the crowd's still not getting it they still don't understand what kind of bread Jesus is talking about now they realize that he's talking about something a little beyond the material. That's at least clear by now. But they're clueless about the real nature of the bread. 
So they say in verse 34, Lord, give us this bread always. They didn't mean give us yourself always. Give us you always. You're the bread. Okay, we want you always. They meant give us this heavenly, whatever you want to call it, life-giving bread that will fill our bellies always. Sounds a lot like the woman at the well back in chapter 4, doesn't it? When Jesus tells her that He can give her water that will quench her thirst forever, always, water that will become in her a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life, the woman's response was, great, give me some of this water right now so that I won't have to keep coming back to this well every day, every single day. But Jesus wasn't talking about that kind of water. He was talking about water that cannot be seen as water by the natural man. Spiritual water. When the crowd said to Jesus, Lord, give us this bread always, they were missing the point just as the woman initially missed the point. Jesus was talking about a different kind of bread. A bread that cannot be seen as bread by the natural man looking through his natural eyes. The bread that Jesus is talking about can only be seen by faith with the eyes of our hearts. It can only be eaten by faith. It can only be received by faith in Jesus. That's the kind of bread we're talking about. Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. I am this bread that I'm talking about. And I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the only true source of spiritual sustenance. Apart from Christ, nothing fills. Nothing satisfies. Nothing. We need to spend a few minutes on this second sentence in verse 35. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. We need to make sure that we're not so familiar with this saying that we miss its depth. It's profound. This is central to the Christian life. What does it mean to come to Jesus in such a way that our hunger is completely satisfied? What does it mean to believe in Him, to Entrust yourself to Him in such a way that your thirst is satisfied entirely. The first thing to know about this verse, I'm in verse 35. I encourage you to have your Bibles open and and looking at it. The first thing to know is that coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus refer to the same thing. Coming to Jesus is believing in Jesus. Truly believing in Jesus is truly coming to Jesus. It's different ways of describing the same reality. Just from different angles. When Jesus satisfies your hunger, He satisfies your thirst as well. Those aren't two distinct, separate things. Both realities refer to putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Eating the bread is the same as drinking the water. These are all the same realities. But what more can we say? What does it mean to come to Jesus in particular? 
maybe it will help to point out what Jesus is not saying. He's not talking about geography. He's not talking about something that you do with your muscles. He's not referring to something that is visible or external. You don't come to Jesus by moving any muscles. You don't come to Jesus by going from one geographical location to another. That's not what the coming means. Coming to Jesus is something that happens in your inner person. In here. In your heart. Your inner being. Here is where you turn away from the sin and the shallow questions and the distractions and diversions that entangle you. And you come to Jesus to commune with Him. Here in your heart is where you dine with Jesus and He with you. You can eat at the Lord's table and fail, and fail to dine with the Lord. The lukewarm Laodiceans in Revelation 3 had kicked Jesus out of their church. They had excommunicated Jesus from the Lord's table. And this can happen on an individual level as well. You can eat with Jesus externally and fail to do so internally. You can eat His miracle fish and miracle bread and not really believe in Him. And eventually, you'll end up deserting Him as this crowd did. You can eat at His table and not know Him. You can partake of the Last Supper with Him and then go out and betray Him with a kiss. You can eat of His body and blood every week without coming to Him. You come to Jesus by faith. You come to Jesus in your heart just as you believe in Him with your heart. Romans 10 makes this very clear. Listen to Romans 10, verses 8-11. to You can just listen as I read it. And pay attention, attention to the three references to the heart. But what does it say? The Word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in, me, in Him will never be put to shame. Believe in Jesus in your heart and you will not be put to shame. Coming to Jesus means believing in Him. Believing in Jesus means coming to Him. They both describe faith in Jesus. And this faith happens in your heart. It, it emanates from your heart. If your interaction with Jesus is only in externals, if your relationship with Him does not go to the heart, if the biblical religion that you participate in every Sunday is not really in your heart, then according to Romans 10, 9 and 10, you are not justified you have not been made righteous. You are not saved. If that's the case, then to use Jesus' words in our passage, you are seeing but not believing. 
what Jesus tells them in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me. And you've seen my works, by the way. And yet you do not believe. They had seen all they needed to see and more. Jesus had even fed them. And they did not believe. And later they deserted Him. These were covenant members. These were churchgoers. Synagogue goers. Temple goers. They had participated in all of the externals of biblical religion all of their lives. And yet, in the end, when they met Jesus, they refused to believe in Him from their hearts. And so, they will be in hell unless they repented after this. In verses 37 to 40, Jesus explains God's sovereign grace in salvation. God alone is responsible for saving lives. Man is not saved by man's will, he is saved by God's will alone. The Father gives people to Jesus. And then the Father ensures that those people come to Jesus, believe in Jesus, eat of Jesus. It's God's will to save a people for Himself. And it's God's will to save a people for Himself through Jesus, His Son. And everyone God wills to be saved will be saved. They will come to Jesus. Look at verse 40. It says, the Father's will is that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. While it's true that believing in Jesus happens in your heart, the good news is that God's salvation is not limited to your heart. Jesus came to redeem your body as well as your soul. And we can extend this application and say that's why what we do in the body matters. So we believe from our heart, but it must make a difference in what we do. And parallel to that is God saves not only our souls, our invisible part, He saves also our body and our works in some way are carried over. He redeems your soul in this world and He promises to redeem your body in the world to come. On the last day when Jesus returns in great glory, He will raise your body from the grave and you will live with Him forever as a fully redeemed person. Redeemed in both body and in soul. All people on earth can be divided into two groups as we conclude here. In one group, there are those who know the satisfaction that Jesus gives. They know the bread that He offers because they've eaten it. They have partaken of Him, not just with their mouths, but also with their hearts by faith. Some in that group are more, more satisfied than others because they come to Jesus and they eat of His bread 
more consistently. In the other group, there are those who know nothing of the satisfaction that Jesus gives. They have never had true inner satisfaction. They, they know others who have the abundant life that Christ offers, but they are on the outside looking in. Some of those people fancy themselves followers of Jesus, but in the end they will desert Him because they are in this second group who, has not, who have not really tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But no matter which group you're in, your response to Christ's teaching here about the bread of heaven is the same, at least in one sense. Come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Eat of Jesus. Those are all ways of saying the same thing. Come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Eat of Jesus. If you're already a believer, if you already know Jesus, then keep coming to Him. Keep believing in Him. Keep eating of Him. If you don't know what the true bread of heaven tastes like, if you don't know Jesus, He doesn't know you, then start coming to Him. Start believing in Him. Start eating of Him. It happens in your heart. It happens through His Word and through prayer as you pray in His Spirit that He gives to those who believe in Him, who entrust themselves in Him. It happens in fellowship with other people who have come to Jesus, believed in Jesus, who are eating of Jesus. Eating regularly of the true bread of heaven will change your life. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe in You. To come to You. To eat of You. Transform our hearts so that they trust in You more. So that they cling to Your cross and not to anything that we have to offer You. We believe in Your Son, Jesus. Help us to believe more. Help our unbelief. Increase our faith. Lord Jesus. Amen.